let's go ahead and get started and then um, with a prayer, and then we'll begin. God and Father, we thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us in so many ways, and one of the richest ways that you've blessed us is through your word that, that you have um, sent down to us and has been preserved through the years. And so, Lord, I ask that as we open up the scriptures, we take very seriously that these are the words that you have spoken to each one of us. So, Lord, I pray that we open our ears and our eyes and our hearts uh, as you reveal your, your word and your love and your mercy to us this morning. Lord, please let these be your words and may it be for your glory. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to start something off a little differently. Uh, and you're going to think this is a waste of time. And for some of you, it, it might be. But for, for some of us, I think it's going to prove a really good point. Uh, this is from a book called You Be the Jury, written by Marvin Miller. Uh, I, I read these books when I was a little bit younger. And how it's played out is I'm going to read a story. I'm going to present to you some exhibits. And from that, we are going to try to determine um, uh, who, who, uh, who should win, the plaintiff or the defendant. Okay. <clears throat> Ladies and, well, I guess it's just ladies. Uh, ladies of the jury. Uh, it is against the law to sell a product that, has, that purposely can be confused with someone else's. This can happen when one company calls its product by the same name that is already used by another company. To do so is called unfair trade practice. Bodine Candy Company is suing Marjorie Bodine for selling chocolates under the Bodine name. Ms. Bodine, the defendant, claims her father sold Bodine chocolates long before Bodine company, Candy Company ever existed. She says that <clears throat> he was the first to use the Bodine name. Alfred Pullman, who is president of Bodine Candy Company, has testified as follows. And it's important that y'all listen as carefully as you can because you, you may catch up on something and, and help decide um, who, who uh, is um, honest and telling the truth and who's not. Uh, Alfred Pullman, who's the president of Bodine Candy Company, has testified as follows. I became the president of our company three years after our founder, Harold Bodine, retired. We make the chewiest chewing gum in all of the country. Oh, excuse me while I take this chewing gum out of my mouth. Our company started in 1975 when Harold Bodine made an important discovery in his kitchen. By mixing together some secret ingredients, he could make gum that crackled and sparkled when you chewed it. If you chewed it in the dark every time your mouth opened, tiny sparks flew out. Harold Bodine called it Bodine Chewing Gum and began selling it to local stores. The gum became popular immediately. Kids kept on asking for Bodine gum. Soon demand for the gum spread to the neighborhood, uh, neighboring towns. Then orders started to roll in from outside the state. Today, the Bodine Candy Company has three plants and warehouses all over the country. Mr. Pullman continued his testimony. Our gum was so popular that we came out with candy corn, coconut bars, licorice, and other candies, all with the Bodine name. Exhibit A. Exhibit A is a box of Bodine Jewel Berry Drops. The name is prominently displayed. You've heard our slogan, throw a Bodine 
throw in a bodine and throw out your worries. Good candy. Uh, our gum and candies are so delicious they make people happy. Bodine Candy Company accuses Marjorie Bodine of using the Bodine name because the company made it famous. The company believes she made up the story about her father selling chocolates before Bodine Candy Company was formed. The company asked the court to stop her from selling her chocolates in the state. It wants her to change the name because people will confuse it with the Bodine products. As proof of the confusion, they enter Exhibit B, a box of Bodine chocolates sold by Marjorie Bodine. Uh, the defendant, Miss Bodine, claims that she has the right to use the name Bodine. She says that her chocolate recipe was her grandmother's. Her grandmother had left school after the third grade to make chocolates in their family's candy shop in France. When Marjorie's father, Philip, <clears throat> moved to the United States, he brought boxes of her grandmother's chocolates with him. That was more than 20 years ago. That was five years before Harold Bodine discovered his chewing gum. Marjorie's father was a door-to-door -door brush salesman. He decided to make extra money by selling Grandma, Grandma Bodine's chocolates to his customers. Grandma Bodine sent boxes of her candy to Philip from her shop in France. Last year, Marjorie Bodine decided to quit her job and sell chocolate candy using her grandmother's recipe. She never knew her grandmother, but found the candy recipe among her father's letters. Exhibit C is Marjorie Bodine's chocolate recipe that her grandmother sent to her father. Marjorie Bodine says that she has every right to use the Bodine name on her chocolate candy. Her father used the Bodine name first years before the people ever heard of the Bodine company. <laughs> Lawyers for the defense called to the stand Gretchen Potts, who was one of Philip Bodine's customers. We quote her testimony. First the question and then the answer. We're almost done, but listen up. Did you ever buy anything from Philip Bodine? Oh, yes. He had the fuzziest brushes. Philip was such a nice man. He didn't speak English very well, but he had the cutest accent. What else did you buy from him? Oh, you mean the chocolates? Yes, he sold the most delicious chocolate candies. When you bought the chocolates from Philip Bodine, were they packaged? Were they in a Bodine chocolate box? I can't remember. He made a special order up for me. Every time he came by to sell me brushes, I would give him my large silver candy dish, and he would return it the next day filled with delicious chocolates. Ladies and gentlemen of the, oh, ladies of the jury, you have just heard the case of the confusing candy. You must decide the merits of Bodine Candy Company's claim. Be sure to carefully exhibit... <laughs> carefully examine the evidence in exhibits A, B, and C. Should Marjorie Bodine be allowed to sell the Bodine chocolates, or did she make up the story about her grandmother's candy? Exhibit A is this, this was the Bodine company um, who says that they had it first. Miss <coughs> Bodine, who claimed, this is her box, and she claims that she got it from her her grandmother or her grandfather would sell it. And this is Exhibit C. This is the uh, recipe that she found uh, and she used. Based on the evidence that we have, A, B, and C, the testimony um, and, uh, of all the witnesses, 
Who can tell me what's, what's really going on here? Does anybody know? Does anybody have an idea? The recipe is written in English. Ah, why would that be important? She was in France. And how many years of education did her grandmother have? Third grade. And thus, we have solved the mystery. If grandmother grew up in France and had a third grade education, it is unlikely that she would write in English this well. And so thus, from this, if you are members of the jury, you would know that she faked this. And if you go on uh, to read this, it's everything. It's printed upside down. I'm, I, I, that, so don't think I'm reading this. Marjorie claimed her grandmother left school after the third grade to work in the family candy shop in France, and the witness said that her father, Philip, spoke poor English. The recipe in Exhibit C, Paula, uh, is a fake written by Marjorie Bodine. Uh, it, had, it had been from her, if it had been from her grandmother, the recipe would not be in English. It would have been written in French. Okay, so what did we learn about that, and how does that have anything to do with women of the Bible? Uh, this, has, this has nothing to do with women and, and the fact that they should be cooking or anything like that. I don't, although, if you want to bring me candies, that would be appropriate. Get, give you the recipe. I'll give it to you in French. I want us to talk about seeing Scripture through a different set of lenses. And, and as I said just a moment ago, I get really, really excited about this. Because what I want us to begin doing, or for some of you continue doing, is I want us to become Bible critics. And when I say that, I'm not suggesting that you become critical of the Bible. I'm suggesting that you ask questions about the text in the same way that you would be if you were on a jury and you would listen and you would look at the testimonies, I'm just asking if you dig a little bit deeper. And in doing so, it's going to reveal some really great truths. Um, for those of you who were here last week when we were in the auditorium, um, I, I shared with you um, a, a short monologue that was based on um, three different passages in the Bible, parallel passages, and we'll talk about those in just a, mo a moment. Uh, some of the information, much of the information that I used was simply, that, simply information that was found in the text. Uh, looking at those three different texts, looking at the different versions of those three different texts, and from that, we were able to get a little bit of an idea. I also used commentaries, which I'll talk about in just a moment, um, and those helped me dig a little bit more. Um, what I'm really trying to do uh, is I'm trying to work myself out of a job. <laughs> I really am, because what I want you to do is I want you to become biblical scholars in the sense that you dig deep, and as you read, you ask questions. I don't want our Bible study to be a simple download of information. 
I don't want it to be something that only takes place on a Sunday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday. When you open the Bible, I want you to read it and think, why did God choose to share this with us? Because I believe He had a purpose. Uh, and we'll talk about that. There are some inherent dangers to doing that, and so we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, when you read a passage, I think all of us know that a scripture can easily be taken out of context. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And I want to be very careful. It breaks my heart. And I know it just literally breaks the heart of God when he sees people who takes his word and twists it and distorts it and use it in ways to promote violence and war and hate. Uh, there's a, a, a group, I, I always forget the name of this 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 Baptist group, I uh, wish Westboro Baptist, and 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 I, there's not a Baptist that I know that would in any way stake any claim to being, uh, you know, uh, fellowshipping with them, um, and that's not my point. They have taken some things that they read out of the Bible, and they have twisted it in such horrible ways, and and they go and they, they pick at funerals and do some just terrible things and say some terrible things. And then they'll, then they'll throw out a scripture and say, this is why, you know, God says, you know, he hates these types of people, and it's, it's awful. Um, and, and so we're going to talk a little, bit about, a little bit about that. But, so, but that shouldn't make us gun-shy. We should be willing to ask questions. So we are going to get to, uh, we're going to use uh, the passage in Luke chapter 2 as an example a little bit later on. Um, but at first, I, I want to talk a little bit about what, what scholars call uh, exegesis. Uh, exegesis is the word which means uh, bringing out. Okay, uh, and I won't use that word a whole lot more, maybe a little bit, but basically it means digging deeper. It means finding out what this, what this really means. I'm going to start off by talking about versions of the Bible. How many versions of the Bible are there? <sighs> yeah, tons. Lots and lots. Oh, and I forgot to bring one. Um, this, is, this is what I use. I, I've had this Bible for a little while. It's a little, a little worn, and I, I, I love it. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about marking up your Bible. That does not take away from the Scripture uh, in any way. Uh, this is what I use. It's the NIV, and it's a 1984. And the reason why I used it is because um, that's what I used <laughs> all, my whole life. Some of you may be familiar with different versions and use all of those. Um, I, I will say this. Uh, and you'll see on the sheet that I passed out, uh, when it comes to, to reading and studying the Bible, don't marry yourself to one version. Uh, and there are certain merits to each one, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, they range uh, in different... Um, each, each version, can you say which one's good and which one's bad? No, I can't. Uh, and, and scholars, for people who are open-minded, they are not going to tell you um, this is a bad one and this is a good one. They're going to tell you, here's the reason why people did what they did. And I want to talk about that for just a second. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to John chapter 3. I mean, I'm sorry, 3 John 1. And that's nearly at the end. If, you got, if you've been to Revelation, um, or if, you're in, if you flip to Revelation, back up. Um, just 
uh, two books, and that's going to be a couple of pages. And we're going to find our, ourselves in Third John chapter 1. And I say chapter 1, there's not a chapter. Uh, so if you get to verse 14, if you're saying, why don't you say 1? And we'll talk a little bit about verses too, because that's interesting. This is all really exciting to me. I love talking about this. I, some of you may be very familiar with it. But this is an example of why we talk about uh, different types of translations. <clears throat> Um, somebody read Third John, verse fourteen. Okay, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Um, and we won't even talk about the context of this. This I just want to talk about the words for just a moment. For whatever reason, when John wrote this letter, and he wrote this specific verse. He chose to use the Greek word, I love this, he chose to use the phrase stoma pros stoma. Now, you don't have to know what that means, and if I didn't look it up or remember it, I wouldn't have known what it means. But stoma means mouth. Prosopon, which is used elsewhere, means face. But for some reason, and it's not a deep theological reason, he chose to use the word mouth. Does anybody guess where I'm going here? He, the, literal, the literal translation here is he says, um, verse 14, I hope to see you soon and we can talk mouth to mouth. Does that have a different connotation to Americans in 2013? When you hear mouth to mouth, you think something differently. I think of somebody who's in need of CPR. When somebody says mouth to mouth, I think that. And if you take the very literal word for word translation, if you read 3 John verse 14, you're going to read it, I can't wait to see you mouth to mouth. Now, already there is a language barrier that caused some, a little bit of confusion. So, almost all of the versions are going to actually kind of, I don't want to say fudge, but rather than focus on the word, they're going to focus on the idea. Because if they say mouth to mouth, everybody's thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Why would, he, why would he do that? And so it's translated as face to face. Um, and so that's not taking away from the Greek or from John when people do that. So on the far extreme, uh, you're going to have uh, the New American Standard Bible uh, is going to be on the way uh, left as far as they're going to be your left. They're going to be very literal. Okay, They're going to be as little word for word. As you progress, uh, you're going to be more familiar uh, with uh, uh, King James is, is literal, the NRSV is literal. You get really about the middle ground is NIV. And it's going to be, and rather than trying to say we're going to be word for word, it says we're going to be thought for thought. Okay, We're not going to say mouth to mouth, we're going to say face to face. Now, you're going to go all the way down, and you're going to get to a far extreme. And I'll, I have a few thoughts about this. The Living Bible, uh, and, and specifically the message. How many of you are familiar with the message? Um, the message is actually one of the translations that I included on there. And translation is almost a stretch for that word. Eugene Peterson used some of the Greek, but he also did a great deal of paraphrasing. 
And there's some merit to that because he uses some phrases that we're common with. He also kind of pushes it a little bit and sometimes you can lose what the author may have intended. So um, I don't think the message is a good study Bible to use. Um, I think it's nice if you want to compare it, but when you want to really understand what they're saying, you're, you're going to put the message next to several different ones. And that's what I try to do on all of those. So that's something that's really interesting. Okay, parallel passages. Um, I want to talk about it just for a second. Last week we talked about the, the woman at the well, and this is going to be, I'm sorry, the bleeding woman. Uh, and that is written about in all three of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8 all talk about this, this bleeding woman. Okay? And so a lot of times, or many times in the gospels, when you read something, you can find it. If you find it in, in Matthew, there's a good chance it might be in Mark or in Luke. And there's fascinating um, thoughts behind that, that actually Mark probably wrote his first and Matthew wrote his later and he was looking at Mark when he wrote it and he could see some of the things and that's why there are some things that are literally word for word you see in Mark. There's also some other things that I don't want to talk about but if you ever want to get me talking too much, well just come up to me but in particular I love to talk about this. It's really fascinating. Because as I, when I grew up, I honestly just assumed that the, that the Bible fell down from heaven, leather-bound, and that's how we got it. And God has used people to bring us this wonderful, His Word, in which people literally died to protect. Uh, they burned Bibles, and they burned people who printed them. Uh, and so this was, what we have here is amazing. Lance pointed out something um, a few weeks ago that I'd never really thought about. The fact that we can go home and have personal Bible study and that we can read the Bible alone is something very, very new in history. Uh, you go back just uh, 100, 200 years uh, and people did not have access to the Bible uh, it was chained to the pulpit. It was um, written in Latin or in Greek. And there were some people who did not want lay people to have the Bible. Um, it was not um, read silently. It was always done aloud, uh, which is also very interesting. But I'm taking way too much time because we've got to get going on. Uh, verses, something that's really interesting. Uh, I love verses and I hate verses. I love chapters and I hate chapters. Okay, And I'll say this uh, because um, John 3.16 What's John 3.16? For God so loved the world. I can tell you that. If we didn't have chapters and we didn't have verses, it would be very difficult to try to reference that. Well, if you get you know, about three and a half pages in and you look down a little bit, that, that's happened. Uh, that's where you're going to find you know, what we call John 3.16. Um, and this is very special because it wasn't until the thir uh, 13th century that we got chapters. So... Um, not including uh, the, old, the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll just say a word about that in just a second. We went, you know, 1,300 years without having chapters. 300 years after that, 16, 16th century, is when we started getting verses. Um, and verses are great because it helps you find a spot, but verses are bad and chapters are bad because we forget that Philippians was a letter written by Paul sitting down and he read it he he wrote it 
most likely Philippians for sure was from start to finish. When it was read, it was start to finish. But because we put in chapters and verses, we dissect it out and we take little bitty parts and we forget that it was a part of a whole letter. Uh, and that's how we get proof texting, which is when you take a verse... Uh, and you pull it out of its context, and, and you say, uh, Philippians 4.13 says, anybody know this? I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And some really wonderful people have put that, you know, that verse, you know, on, they've tattooed it on their body or put it on their little things, you know, and they go out and play football. And then they say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And they can stand in line at the gas station to, to win the lottery ticket. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And Paul was not talking about you can do superhuman things or win the lottery. That's not what he was talking about. And that's what proof texting is. I'm, am I, is this just is this too, uh, information overload? Or, are y'all just ready to move on? Are we okay? Okay. I really get excited about this. Um, okay. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. This, uh, having a glimpse and you say, why do we need to know about chapters and verses? Here's something that, that is going to come out that's going to be really special, I think. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And this is why I'm thankful we have verses. Because <laughs> otherwise it would be really hard for us to find um, Luke 4, 16. He, being Jesus, I'm skipping down a little bit, not starting at the top. Uh, Jesus went to Nazareth. Uh, where he had been brought up on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in this synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. A couple interesting things about that passage. First off, that's interesting. Do you know what he does when he goes to read the scripture? He stood up. What did he do when he was done reading the scripture? He sat down. And maybe that's a message to all the preachers, including myself, to remember that the word of the Lord is so much more important than anything that I have to say about it. That even Jesus, when he read the Bible, he would stand up. And when he was done, he sat down because he wanted to show the importance of the scripture. But here's something else that's really interesting. Anybody want to take a guess? How big Isaiah is if we're looking, if we're talking chapter-wise. Starts with an S. 66 chapters. And actually, it's believed possibly maybe to have written, been written in two books. Now, I just want us to think about this for just a second. What did he read from? From a scroll. This is not a book. Um... Uh, something very interesting about this. Uh, they didn't have punctuation. Hebrew was from right to left. 
if he had written, if that had been in Hebrew, which is most likely what it was, although later it was translated or even before it was translated into Greek, but most likely he read it from Hebrew, right to left. There are no punctuation. There's no uppercase and lowercase. There are no spaces between the words. I mean, just try to wrap your... I wish I'd brought an example of even in English. If you can imagine an entire English sentence with no spaces, all uppercase, it's very difficult to find it. Jesus takes the scroll. Maybe it was in one part, possibly in two parts, and he rolls out this rather long, long, long papyrus and rolls it out. And how well does he know the Scripture? He knows it so well that he can roll to exactly the right spot. And he begins reading. Luke 4 indicates the mastery that Jesus had over the Scripture in that he knew exactly where to go. And if he's willing to, to memorize that, and if he's willing to stand up when he's speaking the word of the Lord and he sits down when he's not, that just tells us how important the Bible is for us. I want to take just a few seconds and I want to talk about manuscripts. There are approximately 5,600 manuscripts uh, we have uh, from the Bible. Some of them are as small as about a credit card. Others are entire scrolls. We do not anywhere of any Bible or of any letter or gospel, we have no original text of anything. None of them exist. Uh, some of them are as early as about the 2nd century, but we don't have the original of anything. Uh, don't let that worry you. Don't let that concern you. The scribes who, who took time in writing this, they um, were super meticulous. Uh, and there were different ways in which they would do it. Um, there are some that said that they would, they would, they would scribe word for word that would, um, what was being said. And then when the word of God... They would write down Yahweh. They would put down their, their writing utensil. Uh, they would pick up another one and they would write Yahweh and put it down. They had one that was re reserved just for the name of God. Another thing that they would do, after they would write this down, they would count every character. Every, every character and make sure it matched up with the one that they were copying from. Then they would count to the middle and find the exact middle character and make sure that it matched the, the other one. And so they were very meticulous, but they were humans. And occasionally they would make mistakes. They were small mistakes. There is nothing in, in our theology or doctrine that is in any way altered by this. I don't, I don't want to throw you into thinking, oh no, what we have is not what really has. Even the manuscripts that we have, uh, they, they help us out. But occasionally, um, there were some changes made. Uh, Mark chapter 16. Let's go there for just a half a second. I wasn't going to talk about this, but this is something that's interesting. Mark chapter 16. And I think you all may be familiar with this. I've shared this before. I doubt it was in the Tuesday class because probably didn't do a plot to forgiveness, but it could. 
Uh, Mark chapter 16, uh, verse 8. What's after verse 8? So, does anybody have anything written after verse 8? What does it say? Okay. Mark 16. It is quite possible that when Mark finished his gospel, he didn't include that. He didn't include 9, 9 through 20. Does that mean it didn't happen? No. It just means that he didn't include that. Uh, most likely, Mark's gospel was a compilation of Peter's sermons. And Peter didn't preach that part. Um, at least at a point where he wrote that down. Uh, and so, um, what most likely happened is later on, as, as a scribe finished verse 8, they said, that is not a good way to end the gospel because we know that Jesus rose. And that it didn't end with the women being trembling and they're afraid and they ran off and said nothing to anyone. Uh, and so instead, they said, hey, we, we probably should add 9 through 20 on. Because you look at Matthew and Luke and John and those were all added. So those were all in there. So let's put it in there. Um, and so that's why you have what, what's called scribal editions. This Anyway, from the gospel, uh, it just highlights that those are a little bit different. Anybody know anything about, anybody heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What do we know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were found, and as the story goes, a little shepherd boy or a kid was out playing, and he threw a rock into a cave, and he heard a noise, and it scared him, and he ran off, and he went, and um, this, these people uh, found um, w these large jars filled with scrolls. And at first, they couldn't read it real well um, because it was in a language that they couldn't understand. And they said, oh, this is a wonderful gift from God because we don't have enough firewood. And they actually began burning some of these to use. Uh, but then they thought, hey, maybe this is important stuff. And then it became a real big deal. And this, this is, there's a big, con anytime you get in the, the Middle East, there's controversies and there's lines. And you don't cross those lines if you value your life. But they realized that, that there would be some people who would like these. And for, you know, a certain amount of money, those could be obtained. And then all of a sudden there was a free-for-all. And people are getting in there and they're digging through and they're getting these scrolls. And they found um, hundreds, thousands, some of them nearly, um, you know, the entire scroll, others real small pieces. Uh, this happened uh, between 1946 and 1956. I mean, think about this. They found scrolls dating back, you know, nearly 800 B.C. Uh, we're talking about, these, they found some that were several years, several hundred years older than anything that they had prior to this. And, and some of you women listen up to this. Uh, this is really important. You need to know this. Older is better. <laughs> older, when you're talking about Bible manuscripts, older is better. Uh, and so, did anything in there drastically change the Bible? No. But it did shed some light on some places, and it was of great benefit. So, and I'm not trying to pick on any versions, but the versions that were written after 1950-60s when they had all this at hand, they're going to be, they're going to have a little bit more authentic original information than an older one. 
Um, and that doesn't change anything drastically, but that's something to think about if somebody argues that King James Version is better because it's older and it's closer to when the Bible was written. The King James Version was based on texts that weren't as old as what we have used now. That's not a slide against the King James because it does some things real well. Okay, one more thing, and then we're going to, boy, we're, we're going way over, but I, I, I really want to get to this real fast. When you start reading the Bible, there's some things you want to look at. You want to look at genre, okay? I love saying that word because I feel a little French when I do that. <laughs> Makes me want to go to McDonald's and get some, some fries because <laughs> they're French. <sighs> Sorry. So you want to be able to read. Okay, we're going to go to uh, my, uh, one of my favorite passages, favorite books in the Bible, Philippians chapter 2. And we're really going to get into women of the Bible, but I, I, what I want this to be is an opportunity for us to learn how to be better scholars because I honestly believe, I believe this with all of my heart, if we come together and we look at a text as a, as a group of believers and we ask questions, I believe that as a group we can get so much more out of the text than if I just show up and say, here's what I've learned. I honestly think if we sit down and read and start asking questions, you're going to bring up some questions that will provide us with some answers and help us better understand this passage. Okay, uh, um, is uh, Philippians, uh, is it history, gospel, or letter? It's a letter. Okay, so that already tells us a little bit about it. Okay, um, I'll give you some insight that if you read Philippians, you would know. Um, some of his letters are called an apologetic, which means it's a defense. Philippians was not written as a defense. You can read it, and you're going to see he talks about love and joy. He's not defending himself. His opening passage, he does not, his opening greeting does not include um, the fact that he's apostle. Uh, although in other, pas in other letters he does. He just says, I'm a servant. Okay? If he had to defend something and he had to kind of flash his badge and show his credentials, no one could do it better than Paul. And he could say, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and what I'm about to say is something that you need to hear. But they knew him and so he starts this letter. So one, we know it's a letter. Two, we know that, uh, um, that he is, it, it is um, a letter where he is encouraging. Okay, so we know that. In chapter 2, uh, we have um, imitate, uh, somebody read the words in italics above chapter 2. Okay, where is that in the Greek? It's not in the Greek. Every version, not every version, includes it in theirs. Some of them put it in there. They can be helpful like chapters and verses. Sometimes they can be misleading. The more I've studied the Sermon on the Mount, the more I believe, while good-hearted the, the NIV um, translators were, I think that their titles were often misleading. Because when Jesus, when it says murder, they weren't, he wasn't really talking about murder. He, he was talking about being angry and um, things like that. And I don't want to get off, but that's that. Okay, so now we know that it's a letter. We know that it's encouraging. Uh, we know that he's, he's kind of giving a plea in chapter 2. Now, does anybody notice how the format of the text changes in the first few verses? Or the first, I'll say, um, 15 verses. Does anybody notice where the text changes, where the print looks different? Some, where is that? Somebody... Starting in verse 5. 
who being the very nature of God, uh, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, verse 5. It leaves prose. It leaves paragraph. Uh, and it goes into what looks like a, a poem. Okay. Most likely, this was a song that would have been sung or more likely chanted by the first and second century church. It's really, really important that we look at the genre of the text before we try to decide what it's saying. Have any of you ever written a letter to a boyfriend before? Or, or have you ever received one from a boyfriend? Are you going to read that letter differently than, say, Webster's Dictionary? Probably so. All of these, there are different genres in the Bible. What's another Bible that, uh, what's another book in the Bible that is filled not with prose but with poetry? Psalm. Does, does poetry always say what it means and means what it says? No. It has emotion, okay? And, and, and the poet is trying to use very beautiful and figurative language to describe something, okay? Um, and so there are things that we're going to read in the Bible where you're not supposed to take it literally. When you read Psalms, the psalmist is not, when, it, when you read Psalm 23 that you're very familiar with, we're, we're hearing this, this idea of shepherd. It does not literally mean that you are a sheep. It does not literally mean that God is going to make you sit down in green pastures. It is figurative language that is talking about God and His love, and it's being written from a shepherd who that's what he knows, and that's how he talks about who God is. That does not take away in any way from how important the Psalms are. It just means that when we read them, we need to think about that. Um, another warning that I'm going to say, and there's lots of confusion over this, and I don't, I don't, I don't have any understanding of this, except to say Daniel and Revelation uh, in particular are apo apocalyptic writings, and they, they were visions. Okay, I believe personally on my very, very, very limited studies. And what I understand from people who are much smarter than me is that Revelation was not meant to be taken literally, that this is how this is going to happen. These were visions, and this is the way God was trying to express something through a vision. Now, we're not going to get into that because I, you, you, could, you, you could talk me under the table and I wouldn't have a clue. I, I've not studied enough about Revelation, but... I just say all that to say, when we read these, let's think about them. Okay. Uh, but, uh, and I hope that you don't walk away and say, man, that was a complete waste of time. I hope that you feel, I just am super, super excited about this. This is the Word of God. And the, the better we can learn to be students, the more it will help. Um, for those of you, for the one, the one or two of you, both of you who thought, wow, that was somewhat interesting. <laughs> Um, thank you for bearing with me. Um, here's a book. There's lots of books, lots and lots and lots of books written about 
what's known as exegesis. And most of the books I read with about seven cups of coffee and four bottles of five-hour energy and toothpicks to hold my eyes up and a dictionary. Then I'm saying, okay, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? And, and scholars, whether it's Bible or whatever, they, they talk big and they like to use big words and they confuse us. This is a book that's actually not too bad. And I actually like it. Um, it's written pretty plainly, and it talks everything from versions uh, to um, lots and lots of things. Uh, and this is one of the few books that I was assigned to read in grad school that I, I nearly read this from start to finish and enjoyed it and found a lot of good things from it. Uh, it is called Elements of Biblical Exegesis, and that makes you shudder, but it's not as bad inside as it is. And it just talks about um, historical context and genre and some of those things, uh, because we'll talk more about those when we look at uh, Luke chapter 2 and all the other ones. When we come together, we're going to ask questions like, what did it mean when Anna was a prophetess? What was a prophetess, and what, what, was that her job title, and... What did that look like back then? Because if you say prophetess now, people don't, don't really know what that means. And it meant something back then. So a lot of those are good questions to ask. Okay, um, before we, we cut out, uh, before we have a prayer, bless you. Do you have, are there any questions? You're exactly right. And what we want to do, Winnie said, I was taught to ask who said it, who did they say it to, you know, and why they said it, what's the larger context in which it was said, where was it spoken at? It would have meant something different when, when Jesus was sitting there and said, look, the fields are, you know, ripe for the harvest. And, and the apostles in John uh, chapter 4, they're still looking at food. What he does, what they are starting to see is coming up over the horizon, maybe over this wheat field, I imagine, is this group of people in which this Samaritan woman has gone to her vi village and brought out, and they're still thinking about food. And he says, look, at the field fields right for the harvest they're thinking food he's thinking people uh, and so there's a lot of different things that's good and we're gonna I want us to start asking all those questions and I think you're really going to get excited about reading the Bible um, again read it again for the first time uh, so any other questions I really am sorry that I've taken so long uh, next week you'll get a chance to do a lot of the talking and I'll get to do the listening and you can apologize for us being 30 minutes behind Let's close with a prayer. Father God, thank you so much again for your word and how um, it, it has the ability to penetrate. And Lord, I just I pray that we, we realize that, that, that it is not something to inform us, but it is your word that transforms us. And that as we read these stories of these women, it's not just a nice story about a woman who showed uh, or displayed faith. What really is, it's an example of how we can live our lives out. And when people see us, we are writing the gospel by the way we respond and react. And so, Lord, I just pray that we will do that. Thank you so much. Uh, for what, what you have done for us and how you continue to, to live among us. And may we give you praise every day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.